uh, Joyland tonight, super special night. Uh, just an absolute big thank you to uh, Bill and, and Tracy and, and your friends for coming tonight. Um, Bill and I met for the first time today, and it was really one of the, one of the most uh, edifying first meetings I've ever had with anybody. And uh, I am so incredibly excited. Um, so, so you guys know, especially parents, we uh, we usually, and we're going to stay with our regular order tonight. We usually do uh, testimonies and teaching and stuff like that first, and then we do worship at the end so that uh, folks that are on Zoom and further east and all that kind of stuff can go there. So we're going to stick with that. I, I talked to Bill about it, and he was getting to get up. I had a guy one time tell me it's like uh, brushing your teeth with no water. But <laughs> there's, anyway, uh, what can I say to our people? Uh, as Bill and I kind of shared and, and uh, shared a cup of coffee and and, <laughs> and shared, yeah, Ronnie will ask a question regardless of whether there's uh, a point to it or not. No, he'll be there. Um, but as we were comparing stories, the faithfulness of God to get you to a place where your heart can respond to his call. <laughs> and it happens in different ways, and I know, but, but everybody's on that journey. Everybody, even the ones that are super satisfied that they know everything is the way it's supposed to be right now, they're still on that journey. Yeah. So I, uh, uh, I've been, been reading some of uh, N.T. Wright's work recently and working through some stuff, and he has a a bit of controversy swirling around him, if you if you know anything about him, and um, it's over his translation, particularly in Romans, about uh, righteousness, the righteousness of God, and the way he translates it as the covenant justice of God or the covenant faithfulness of God. And that was kind of what I was thinking about when I was driving home today. Is what you were telling me in your story? What I was hearing was a a, a living demonstration, not only of your willingness to follow the Lord, but of God's covenant faithfulness. So anyway, we had a fun talk. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> I, I super enjoyed it. And so I, I don't know anything else to say except um, this mic's going to stay here, and we have a habit here, and I, I prep Bill on it, that if you have a question or a comment, you're welcome to come up. And uh, it will be on Zoom. And that goes for the Zoomers, too. Most of you, uh, I recognize a bunch of you. So those of you that know what's going on, you know how to get Riley's attention. And you may get some questions from Zoom as well. Um, I just want to give you permission for whatever level of authority I have here to do what the Holy Spirit is asking you to do. And that's all we ever ever can ask, and I think something special is going on. So those of you that are guests, welcome. Thank you for coming. And those of you that are regulars, uh, buckle up. I think it's going to be wonderful. You're up. Do it. Do it, Sonny. Uh, yeah, you know... Uh, it's been a while so since I, you and I ministered together. I know. It's been far too long. I'm going to sit down. I know them from Maui. And... Uh, I was living there, and I guess it was Bethel's, was a, the first kind of pilot school for the supernatural ministry. Right. 
and Bill and another guy was heading it up and uh, they were sending videos up over to us as they were making them. And uh, so they, they've really like imparted to me and like that really set me on a, a course of expecting more than what I was having or even though I was having a certain amount of things happen, this put me at another level of expectation. But all day I've been thinking, how, how can I explain who these guys are? And, and uh, I come up, you ever seen the movie, The Incredibles? <laughs> you know, it's like these people that are set in, in society that have superpowers and nobody knows it, right? And all of a sudden they, they erupt and they go out and do something and then then they're hidden again. And I imagine Bill and Tracy even has a, a wall that they go and push the button and, you know, out comes <laughs> the super uh, suits and the uh, vehicle and they go out and do their thing and then go back into real life. And, and they've, they've done, like you've done crepes at <laughs> Disney World, right, as a business in Florida. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, sort of. And just various things in life. But uh, uh, I've... One of my dreams here was I, I always wanted to build, bring Bill and Tracy here over the years and, and the circle of life comes back and I had the opportunity. So I really, uh, you're gonna enjoy these people and just, uh, yeah, just release yourself. Oh my goodness, your thanks. Su man. Your superpowers. Thanks brother, thanks Shelly. All right, oh, you guys are great, thank you. Good to see everybody online, too. How cool is this? I can actually see people. How fun is that? Uh, so I got to introduce a few people. Uh, my wife, Tracy, is right back here. And uh, Tracy and I have uh, been married for 30 years. She, uh, I always like to say, we, we got married super young, like really young. I met her when I was five years old. <clears throat> so um, we got married like a short time after that because it was in the South. And you know. <laughs> We did get married young. I said, I'll say, um, she hates it when I say this, but when we got young, we were so, uh, so young when the minister said, you may kiss the bride. I was like, gross, uh, uh, which is not true. I've been telling that joke for like 20 years. So <clears throat> anyhow, uh, we just celebrated our 30th anniversary and uh, yay. So uh, we wrote a book about marriage. It's back there. I think there's a few copies left and it's called The Four People You Marry. And the four people are, yeah, when you get married, you married four people. You married the person you think they are, the person they think they are, the person they are right now, and the person that they are becoming. And we find that problems arise in marriage when you fall in love with one or two out of the four. When the other ones show up, and I promise you they will, you can find yourself thinking, I did not sign up for this. I got fooled. This is not what I was in for. And... Uh, and a lot of people will end up throwing covenant away before it becomes really its best. So it's really about how to walk through radical changes in life and grow together instead of growing apart. That's kind of cool. So uh, also with us tonight, we have a couple of our, really our best friends in the whole world, Jim and Mary Baker uh, from Columbus, Ohio. Jim pastors a church called Zion Christian Fellowship. And if I told you who he was, you'd probably say, well, give him the mic because he's really, it's not just a... Uh, um, one of my favorite people on earth. He's one of the best Bible teachers on earth. So uh, he and I just got done doing a conference down the road here at uh, Glen Airy. Is that what they call it? 
and the castle and, uh, and just had a blast. So that's why my voice is on the edge of gone. But uh, we are so, so honored to be here. Let me, uh, let me just really, really briefly mention just some of the resources that are back there. I wrote a book uh, a few years ago called Reckless Grace, and it's based on John chapter 20 and verse 23, where Jesus says, strange cryptic verse, John 20, by the way, uh, Jesus is risen from the dead, and he does something he only ever does twice in the whole Bible, where God breathes on man, doesn't Genesis 1, 26, and then in John chapter 20, Jesus raised from the dead, appears to the disciples, says, peace to you, breathes on them, says, receive the Holy Spirit, says some other things. Then he says a strange verse, and the Lord really drew my attention to it years ago where he says, whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. And whoever sins you retain, they are retained. And I thought, what? And so that is um, that book is 180 pages of, let's just pretend that verse is actually true. What would it be like if you believe the grace you give away actually matters? I'm not saying you're the source of grace. He's the source, but he lives in you. That makes you the resource. And so you and I are literally responsible to represent his grace to this world. And uh, 2,000 years after the cross, it's not God's fault that people are confused about his nature. Moving on. Okay, there's some, uh, some other great books back there, and feel free to go check those out. Uh, there's some thumb drives, some thumb drive teachings. There's a teaching back there on identity that's 24 hours long. Just to jump driving, plug it into your car or computer. And um, I'll give it to you in a nutshell. God told Jeremiah... Prophet Jeremiah said, I knew you before I formed you, which means you could be known before you knew you could be known. So then what did he know? That's the question. Because what he has always known about you is who you really are. You have one assignment in this life is to find out what God has always believed about you since before the beginning and agree with that, which means you're going to have to let go of everything you think about yourself to lay hold of what he believes about you. That's it. It's your one assignment. Believe what God believes about you. Uh, that's 24 hours of teaching on that back there. There's another one called Walking in the Power and the Presence of the Holy Spirit. It's on spiritual, 12 hours of teaching on spiritual joyfare. I did not say warfare, I said joyfare, which should go nicely in this place, Joyland. Uh, here's all 12 hours in three words. Ready? Demons hate joy. <laughs> Demons hate joy, and so do religious people. So, anyway, that's fun. Uh, there's, a, there's a teaching back there on uh, the book of Daniel. Uh, there's a teaching back there, an eight hour, a 10-hour teaching, I think, on the book of Daniel from a New Covenant perspective. Everything I do, by the way, is a New Covenant from a New Covenant lens. There's a teaching back there on uh, Revelation uh, from, uh, from a New Covenant perspective. It'll make Revelation the happiest book you've ever read in your entire life. If you know somebody who's an end-time fanatic, get it for them. It'll drive them nuts and give you guys tons to talk about. So uh, anyway, there's all kinds of good stuff back there. Feel free to ask Tracy about any of it, and she'll be happy to let you know. Um, I hadn't planned on doing this tonight, but Larry and I sat down and started talking a little bit about our stories. And when I started telling Larry my story, uh, Tracy my story, I thought, well, that's kind of a good way to introduce myself to new friends. And um, so I'll give it to you kind of in a nutshell and tell you the story I don't often tell. Uh, I, I grew up as a Wesleyan Methodist kid. My dad, come on, huh? Yeah. My dad was part of the holiness movement. 
except they only lacked two things, holiness and movement. Otherwise, they were at everything. And, uh, and dad had this, uh, had this thing where, you know, sickness and poverty were signs of deep spirituality, and he had both of them quite often. So uh, that's this the way kind of I grew up. And then one day, we were in St. Cloud, Minnesota, and there was a, I'm, I'm like five years old, four or five years old at the time, and there was a, uh, a restaurant there called the Praise the Lord Cafe. And the pastor told my dad, don't go in that cafe, it's of the devil. And my dad was like, wow, the devil's seriously like bold about the faith. Like, that's kind of intriguing. So while nobody was looking, my dad and mom went into the cafe. There was a, the owner of the cafe was a spirit-filled brother who was highly prophetic, and he prophesied over my parents. Next thing you know, my parents were doing what they didn't believe you could do, which is speaking in tongues. So they got filled with the Holy Spirit, had a radical encounter with God. And dad said to mom, he says, don't tell anybody what happened. He said, she says, well, what are we going to do? We tell people, have to tell people we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And he goes, let's just call it something else. Just let's make up a new name for it. So uh, dad got up that night in the, uh, the Nazarene church in St. Cloud, um, excuse me, Florida, to, um, to preach. And when he, uh, when he got up, he starts preaching. My dad was a preaching machine, needed no microphone. And as he's preaching, in the middle of the sermon, he stops with eyes wide. And what he would say later is, for the first and only time in his life, he heard the audible voice of God say, stop, I want to heal somebody. And my dad then says, after a pause, which we all heard, my dad says out loud, how do you want to do it? And what he hears in the next pause is, have these people grip their Bibles and you pray and I'll heal. It was a formula, by the way, that never worked again. It's like a one-time thing. Interesting. God, God's more interested in, in operating us operating by presence over principle because we will push away relationship to just grab a hold of a formula to get things done. And uh, he just really, I, think, I feel like the Lord is always teaching us to hear his voice. Just when you think that you've figured out the language he speaks you, to you in, suddenly he changes languages. And... Uh, and I think through the course of our lives, we are destined to become spiritually multilingual. So, <clears throat> so dad says, uh, God wants to heal somebody. If you grip your Bibles, I'm going to pray and God's going to heal you. And uh, I remember sitting in, in a pew with my mom. And at the end of the pew, there was a guy who'd been in a motorcycle accident. And he had a big body brace on. And he stands up and he unbuckles this thing. He looked like a robot. He unbuckles this thing. Next thing you know, he's down doing push-ups, jumping jacks yelling, I'm healed, I'm healed. He runs around the church. This lady that had these, these like crutches, you know, that kind of hold on your forearms like this. She throws them through the air and starts waving her arms. I'm healed, I'm healed. Uh, totally spontaneously, when dad said this and prayed, suddenly, boom, wave of healing just hit the, hit the church. Well, they were off to the races. At that point, healing, miracles, signs, and wonders marked my parents' ministry. When Tracy and I got married, we went to Bible college and we learned how to build a church without the Holy Spirit, which we did in Austin, Texas. I was an Assembly of God pastor for 12 years. God bless the Assemblies of God. And uh been a long time since you've heard this story, but I know I told it in Hawaii. I don't get to re- revisit this very often, so this is kind of fun for me tonight. My dad's ministry and my ministry kind of took a, a bit of a divergence where I was building, I was building a large successful church that was seeker sensitive and not Holy Spirit sensitive. My dad, on the other hand, was out doing mission work and seeing amazing miracles happen. Uh, our motto back at our church was everything with excellence. And so dad uh, came to visit our church after we built our new building, bought property out on the highway, built this new building. 
I mean, it was, it was going to be, this was rocking. And we were feeling good. We were super successful. We had a great staff. And suddenly one day, my dad shows up to church. And I said, uh, afterwards, after the service, I said, Dad, what would you think? And Dad said, man, Bill, that was excellent. It was so excellent, you don't even need the Holy Spirit. And you can still do church. You know, it's like, whew. Oh, and, uh, um, and that actually hurt pretty good. I, I needed to hear it. So I told the staff, I said, let's, uh, let's gather for prayer on Saturday afternoons around one o'clock. Let's just, let's just see what the Lord does. And we were singing a lot of vineyard songs back then about wind and waves and water and nature and all that stuff, right? So I'm standing in the middle of the sanctuary, kind of like if I was standing in here. Ceiling's 27 feet tall. So I'm, I mean, we had built this building with, you know, all of us had just pitched in on this thing. And uh, so I knew every square inch of this building. I'm standing there like this. I have my arms out and I go, God, send the rain of your presence. And I feel a drop hit my arm. And I look up and there's a wet spot on the ceiling right above us. And it's growing rapidly. Not just growing, but it's like falling. Water's falling. And within a minute, my wife was there. Within a minute, it had covered the entire sanctuary. And water is falling everywhere in our new building. And I say, I got mad. Like, seriously, just got mad. I told it just right over my head. And I say out loud, this is bad. This is wrong. This is going to ruin everything. And so the staff starts grabbing all this plastic to cover stuff up to keep it from getting wet and ruined. And, uh, and I left my phone out in the car. So I stomped outside to call the contractor. My son, Britton, who was 10 years old at the time, follows me outside and he noticed what I missed. And that was, there was not a cloud in the sky. And he yells after me, dad, look, it's dry outside, but it's raining in the sanctuary. He thought it was cool. And suddenly I stopped and I looked and I thought, what is going on here? And I felt the Holy Spirit slam into me. And as hard as I've ever heard or felt his presence or heard his voice say this, if I pour out on this church what you've just asked me for, the same response you just had will be the same response these people have. This is bad. This is wrong. This is going to ruin everything. And I realized in that moment I had preached a gospel that didn't require anything of God. In other words, the power of God didn't need to show up. And I also avoided everything in the Bible that I didn't understand, which made everything super safe. And uh, we had turned a lot of things into formula and pushed the relational side, the Holy Spirit, just out. And uh, our worship leader came out and said, Bill, you got to come take a look at this. About 15 minutes later, I walk in. There's not a spot of water anywhere. I mean, it dried up just like that, like it never happened. Everywhere where the water had collected in the plastic, it was just dust. So we wrapped everything up, put, put it all away. I didn't know what to make of that. Not too long after that, Tracy and I ended up uh, <clears throat> leaving and resigning, not really sure where we were going to go, and that's really how we ended up in Hawaii. I went over there to be an under, underwater videographer and ended up being an associate pastor at a church over there. And while we were over there, uh, I had become... Here's another part of the story I don't tell often. We were living in the woods in Austin, and I didn't know where to go next. I just knew God was leading us into a season where we were having to stretch beyond our understanding. That makes sense. And, and the Lord will do that. You know, He's really interested in our, our growth. And, uh, and so uh, a friend of mine um, had invited me to a conference where a guy named Bill Johnson was going to be speaking. I'd never heard of Bill. I knew nothing about where he's from. And I didn't want to go to another conference. The conference was on Friday night. On Thursday night, I woke myself up in the middle of the night 
was actually face down, which is really unusual for me. And I'm saying out loud, I'm saying out loud this phrase, what you know will keep you from what you need to know if you don't remain a novice. Which I don't ever use the word novice. And it was a strange, I was repeating this over and over again. It was like cycling in my head. And so I sat up in bed and I turned on the light and I wrote down the phrase, what you know will keep you from what you need to know if you don't remain a novice. And I'm like, that's so strange. Like, what a weird phrase. But I thought, it's profound. And so I uh, went back to sleep. The next day, I knew I was supposed to go to this conference. So I went late because uh, I really wasn't interested in being there. When I got there, there wasn't any seat. So I stood against the back wall. And uh, Pastor Johnson's up in the front. And they introduce him. He gets up in the front. And he's super quiet. And he says three things I'll never forget. He said, he scans the room and he goes, Jesus is the most normal Christian in the Bible. Long pause. Bill is just the master of the long pause. And I'm thinking to myself, I think I'm relatively normal. Pretty sure I'm a Christian. Nothing like Jesus. So now I'm already offended. He said one thing, I'm already offended, right? And then he scans the room again and says, Jesus Christ is perfect theology. I'm like, I'm a Bible college graduate. Nobody ever told me that. That would have saved me a lot of time and money. Now, now I'm doubly offended, right? And then he scans the room again, looks straight in the back where I'm standing because I don't have a seat, looks right at me and says, verbatim, what you know will keep you from what you need to know if you don't remain a novice. And I had to pick my job off the floor. I was just, I was like, excuse me? And that night I saw the power of God move in in the room. And uh, I thought, oh, okay, there is more. There was a hunger that stirred in my heart. And here was the thing. I I believe in hunger, not from a place of lack. You have access to everything in God. He's given you the Holy Spirit without measure. He's given everything pertaining to life and godliness has been provided to you. Right? We have access to everything. Matter of fact, uh, the spirit of truth lives in you, the one who knows everything, which means you actually know everything. We just don't understand everything we know. We haven't explored everything we know. That's why eternity is going to take so long, because it's going to take that long for us to learn everything we know and then understand everything we know. Um, and it's always unfolding. It's, we're, we're going to be chasing the wisdom of God for all, all of eternity. Why? Because it's manifold. It's unfolding. Every time, every time you just see, think, seen the extent of it, it, it expands and doubles, and then you're like, wow, there's more. Which is, I think, why the angels flying around the throne are going, holy, holy, holy. It's not that they're, you know, just have this job to repeat this one word for the, you know, for all of eternity. I think every time they see, holy, they say holy, I think they're seeing something of God they've never seen before. Which I think it's more like, holy! Holy, oh, I think more like that. Uh, and I, so I think there's, there's, a, there's a sense where, I mean, start learning now. I, I don't think it's going to be a waste of time for you to be a student because I think in eternity we will be students. Uh, why do I think that? Because John stood in, in Revelation in the throne room of God and four times they have to stop the play and explain to John what's going on. You can't be much more in the presence of God than standing before the throne. And so you can literally be in the presence of God and not suddenly automatically know everything that's happening. I think, uh, I hope Heaven's orientation class is good. You know, I mean, we're going to have a lot of time to do a lot of learning. Uh, we're eternally going to be learning, unfolding revelation. So uh, I leave that that moment and I realize I, 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 that, that, that there's more, but it's there's something of hunger in my heart, but it's hunger based on what I already have access to. 
I know this stuff is real. Why? Because I saw it in my dad's ministry. I grew up with this. I mean, I ate, slept, and breathed this stuff with my parents. I just hadn't learned how to walk in it like, like they had. And uh, uh, we get to Hawaii, and Bethel was launching their, their BSSM. Uh, um, it, it wasn't online yet. I think there was like five videos on YouTube of Bill Johnson's back then. And I had uploaded like four of them. They didn't have a podcast. Uh, they hadn't done any worship albums at that time. But they were starting to produce DVDs of the school. So they send us these DVDs, and we get together with a handful of leaders, and we say, hey, it'd be great if we you know, showed these to some people on the island. Let's just put the word out and see if anybody's interested. I thought, man, if we, if we have, uh, if we have uh, 20 people, 25 people sign up, plus the six leaders that we put together, we have 30 people, that would be super. That'd be hugely successful. So we were in contact with Bethel about it and kind of giving reports on what we were planning on doing. There was no Facebook back then, so there's no social media to like put a word out on. Uh, so we really didn't have any way of getting the word out other than the good old-fashioned word of mouth. And so uh, we decided to show the videos on an off night, like a Tuesday night up at the church. We were, I was pastoring at the time called Grace Church in Pukalani on Maui. And uh, so that night, uh, people started coming in. And you leave the doors open in Hawaii, doors and windows just wide open. And we should turn the lights down. People are just coming in. As they're coming in, they're signing in on these, this piece of paper. We run out of paper. We got to get more paper. Now the seats are full. Now people are sitting on the floor. We ended up with like 210 people signed up for the school that night. I don't know where they all came from. Were you guys there the first night? Yeah. That was the night Charlie Maxwell came in and got healed. So there was this guy named Charlie Maxwell. He was like a, a Hawaiian shaman, a super famous uh, Hawaiian guy who uh, had an altar at the top of Haleakala Volcano in the state, in the national park. He'd go up there and welcome the sunrise and welcome the gods and all this stuff and, and affirm that the, the islands belong to the gods and all these things. Well, Charlie had bad knees and somebody had told him that there was a supernatural school of ministry starting, which we didn't even know what we were going to call it. We had no like name for it. We just, we're just showing videos. That's all we're doing. We hadn't seen the videos. We didn't know if we agreed with everything that was going to be shown in these videos. We just put them on, right? So Charlie comes walking in after we had started the, the, the thing, and he has such bad knees, he's on two canes. And he walks to the front, kind of waddles to the front. Since it's dark in the room, nobody knows who Charlie is. So he comes in, sits down at the front with the lady who had invited him, Kati. And so uh, uh, Char- Charlie's sitting there. In the middle of the thing, his knees get hot, and suddenly he starts moving them around and realizes he's healed. Stands up, starts jigging around like this. I'm standing in the back, and I kick on the lights, and now everybody recognizes it. I don't know who the guy is from anything. Well, Charlie just stands up and is like, Jesus healed my knees. Well, he's happy in the middle of a video. Video's still playing. Well, everybody hears about this. And later on, actually, Charlie invited a local, local pa- bunch of local pastors and worship teams to the top of the, uh, the, the volcano to the altar that they had been worshiping the gods at for generations to dedicate the island to Jesus. So it made a bit of a splash. So next thing you know, we start meeting in this little, this little uh, building down, what was that called, Highly Miley? Yeah, the old... The old- community center or something down there pack that place out we had to open the windows people were out on the lawn sitting and listening to these videos as we're playing these things and week after week we get these new videos and we play them and then we go out and do this stuff we divide people up into groups and we send them out they come back with astonishing miracles 
tell you one that just really stands out to me. We had uh, a group of five students that went down to a little surf town called Paia one day, and they said, you know, we, we, uh, we got to learn new ways to hear God. And we were basically telling people, you know, come up with new ways to hear God. If you don't know how to hear, hear God, ask him to teach you. He'll either send people into your life, he'll give you dreams, visions, the Holy Spirit will start giving you impressions, the Holy Spirit will give you courage and boldness to stretch into new ideas. And you'll think, hmm, wonder where that idea came from. Probably the Holy Spirit. So in this case, these guys all sat down, these five kids sat down, and said, hey, let's, let's make a list of things. Like, ask God to give you a picture, and we're going to put these five pictures down. Let's make a list and see if these are clues. Nobody had ever heard of tre- treasure hunting. We didn't, there was no name for it. They're just making stuff up here. Let's come up with clues that might, might, would lead, lead us to somebody that God wants to touch. So the first person, goodness, I haven't thought of this story in years. first person says, okay, okay, uh, I see two lambs laying in a field of flowers. Well, there's no lambs in Maui, so it's like, all right, whatever. So, you know, somebody writes that down. Somebody says, I see like some really nappy surf hair. Somebody says, I see uh, a blue t-shirt with a pocket right here. Somebody says, I see white Adidas tennis shoes. That's unusual because nobody wears clothes-toed shoes in Maui. Um, Somebody else goes, um, uh, Oh, it was one of the, oh, oh, I see, I see like sheets flapping in the wind. Okay, so now they've got their clues. So they walk all over this little town and they can't find anybody who seems to match up with this. They pray for a few people. God does some cool things. And as they're about to finish up their outreach for the day, they walk by this little Buddhist shrine and in front of it was a painting of two lambs laying in a field of flowers. Well, this girl goes, oh, that's what I saw. And so uh, right next to the Buddhist shrine is a laundromat. Because, you know, why not? So they look in the laundromat. There's one guy in there, nappy surf hair, blue pocket tee, white Adidas tennis shoes, pulling sheets out of a dryer and going like this. So this is what happens when you have a convergence of that many things that are like way beyond coincidence. You're emboldened with so much faith that you know God's about to do something. They run in, and there's no gentle, excuse me, my name is, they run in, we're supposed to pray for you, God's going to touch you, his power's going to, I mean, they went after this guy, freaked this kid out. So they sit him down in a chair, I mean, what is he going to do? You know, five people are coming at him, they tell him what to do, he's just sitting there like, sure enough, he's a, he's a believer, he doesn't have any problems in his body, his family's fine, he's all cool, but as he's sitting there, and they're trying to pray for him, trying to think of, God, why'd you lead us here? His friend walks into the laundromat. And his friend walks in the laundromat, who, who's never been to church in his life, grew up in, in Maui, surfed all the time, no, no idea about anything related to Jesus. So his friend who's sitting in the chair says, hey man, you should let these guys pray for you. You could use it. Well, he didn't really care. He's like, whatever. So I, he sits down in the chair. Now they've got these kids around him. They start praying for him, and each one of them suddenly has like... You dreamed this last night, didn't you? And yeah, that's what I dreamed last night. And this is what God says it means. One thing after another, they're reading his mail. I mean, the prophetic just turns on in these kids who just didn't know how to hear the voice of God, you know, 20 minutes ago. So uh, this kid ends up face down on this dirty laundromat floor, giving his life to Jesus. Well, the next night, he comes to our school of ministry. I mean, on Monday nights. Here goes... This kid, he's not even like 24 hours old in the faith. And he, he comes in, Joel Fernandez, I think, was uh, his, his group leader. And uh, this kid goes, uh, 
at the end of the night, we're talking about dividing up worship teams or and ministry teams, who's going to go out on the island and who's going to do what. This kid comes up to me and goes, hey, I want to go out on a ministry team. And I'm like, no. I mean, you just got saved. Your parents are Buddhists. You got, you got to go through at least six months of deliverance, another six months of discipleship. And I hear the Lord say, shut up and let him go, because that's how God talks to me. So sometimes he talks in the language you need it, right? Shut up and let him go. So I'm like, okay, fine. So I told Joel, I said, you just watch this kid, man. So Joel calls me the next day. They go out to Baldwin Beach, a couple of other places down there, and, and all these surfers and stuff around these places, and tourists and everything. And it turns out this kid goes and prophesies over a couple of people, lays hands on a girl who has her arm in a sling, and her arm gets healed. So I'm thinking 48 hours, meets Jesus 48 hours ago, and he's prophesying, laying hands on the sick and seeing them healed. And I'm like, I'm dealing with Christians who've been saved for 30 years, walked with God for decades, who I'm having to argue that this stuff is even real. And this kid's known the name of Jesus for 48 hours. And he's out doing more stuff than a lot of these folks. And it really, it taught me something about birthing people in in power with an encounter with God. And uh, that young man ended up, going out to Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, and I think he's doing great work for God to this day. Uh, I mean, we were just off to the races at that point. It was just a wild, wild time. And uh, uh, it really launched Tracy and I into a whole other world. And uh, that's a little bit about, about how we got to where we are. So we feel like we're kind of on a roller coaster ride of sorts, and it's the greatest ride ever. And I'll just kind of bring you up to to speed right now. God's really taken us into a revelation of the new covenant. I, I've become painfully aware as I travel the nation. I don't want to speak as if I'm some expert or authority here, but in terms of the amount of people that we have access to and, and talk to in churches that we speak in, I suddenly begin to realize, even in spirit-filled churches, people have a, a very limited working knowledge of the new covenant. By working knowledge, they know the words new covenant. And they know it's about Jesus <clears throat> they don't know what it what it really means. Like, how do I apply that even to my life? So that's what we've been talking a lot about lately is, is this thing of the new covenant. So I want to give you some things about the new covenant tonight, and hopefully they'll produ- produce or provoke some questions. Uh, because the new covenant... Um, <clears throat> The new covenant changed the terms of engagement between us and God. I think a lot of people have, they have what I would call a... Uh, New covenant salvation they've grabbed a hold of, but an old covenant relationship with God and an old covenant perspective of an expectation of the future. One of the most disturbing trends, online audience, pay really close attention to this. One of the most disturbing trends in the body of Christ right now comes from the fact that in the last two years, the idol of our certainty has come crashing down. Okay, Now, when people lose the idol of their certainty... What do I mean by that? That it means that we produce this this uh, five ten year plan, and it makes us feel super responsible. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but sometimes that becomes so solid in our life that if God showed up and wanted us to change direction, we would say no. Why? Because certainty becomes our security. Uh, Charles Finney said that you can tell a nation is ripe for revival when the vast majority of Christians are actually in a position to say yes to the word of the Lord. That's kind of where we are right now. 
where everything has been shaken. People have lost jobs. They don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next. So the idol of this certainty thing has just dropped. People are now living with open hands. And, um, and so, uh, when I look at, when I look at humanity right now, I see this, this massive amount of Christians that are sitting there going, you know, what do I do next? Okay. So, so the new covenant was, in a sense, God's rules of engagement change. His, his terms of engagement change to the point where now we live in a completely different world. And yet, when you hear people prophesy in the time when certainty has gone away, they typically get a little fearful. And, and for whatever reason, it, I would say good-hearted modern prophets who just want to see everybody follow the Lord go back to an old covenant perspective and think to themselves, oh my goodness, this means judgment is coming. And so they start prophesying negativity into the future, not stopping to think about this really important fact. And that is that God has not judged us collectively as either the body of Christ or as a nation in 2,000 years. Since the resurrection. Okay, so Old Covenant judgment went like this. Uh, God had uh, planted a prophet within the nation, recognized, carried great power. It didn't mean that they were liked. I mean, they were hated, right? But God had planted a prophet within the nation, and then God would come to that prophet and say, this is what I'm about to do. Isaiah, Jeremiah are prophesying. Babylon's going to come in and going to take you guys captive. I mean, super detailed, but doing it like decades before it's ever going to happen. A long lead up time. And in the middle of it all, there's this, these caveats. If you change your ways, you turn and you repent, these things won't happen. Israel doesn't repent, but they've heard this prophecy for so long that when it actually comes to pass, collectively they go, Oh, God wasn't joking. And so collectively as a nation, often they'll turn, repent, they end up having a season of revival. For whatever reason, today we have modern prophets who believe that the only way that we can have a season of revival is for them to take a look at everything that's going wrong, prophesy a negative, hopefully it'll generate some response in people's hearts. What they're actually doing is stirring fear, and that fear will hopefully turn everybody back to God. There's the good motive, but that turning back to God will ultimately bring the favor of God as if the cross didn't already give us enough. See what I'm saying? Okay, so it, it's real popular concept because the Old Covenant takes up 1,300 years of space in, in my Bible. It, it runs probably around this much space in your Bible. So when this much of the story of God in print is of God's dealings with man from an Old Covenant perspective, it's really hard to look at Jesus and go, well, that supersedes, overcomes, and completely undoes everything that the Old Covenant ever did. So, so the Old Covenant, what's, what is the deal with the Old Covenant? In a nutshell, and I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir on this. I, I know Pastor Larry's probably like giving you guys all this stuff and then some. <clears throat> but for anybody who online is, who's not who's not familiar with this, in Exodus 19, Israel's come out of Egypt. They come to Mount Sinai. 
God says in Exodus 19, see what I did to the Egyptians. I bore you up on eagle's wings, brought you out of Egypt. And he says, he calls them this, as a kingdom of priests. This is what God looks at when he looks at them. He doesn't see slaves, he sees kingdom priests. As a kingdom of priests unto myself, he says, for all the earth is mine. So I'm going to paraphrase. He says to these guys, you in for this? If you're, if you're in for this, we can have this kingdom priesthood thing happening right now. And Israel goes, yes, we're in. God says, great, take three days, wash your clothes. You're going to have over a million people together in one church service. Do some laundry. Take a bath. I mean, it's super practical stuff. Good advice even today. So, so God says, you know, consecrate yourselves. Wash your clothes. Take a bath. Then on the third day, come to the edge of the mountain. When you hear the trumpet sound, this is the part that people seem to like miss. When you hear the trumpet sound, he says, come up to me. The Hebrew word is Allah, which just means to climb. When you hear the trumpet sound, the Bible says the trumpet becomes louder and louder and louder. Nobody moves. Nobody moves. So God says, Moses, come here. Go tell the people, come slowly. Still nobody moves. Moses, come here. He actually has Moses come to the mountain three times. Go tell the people, don't move at all. What you're hearing is a frustrated father who's invited his children to step out of slavery into sonship, into kingdom priesthood. They're so freaked out and scared of what they see in God. The power and the majesty of God. First thing they'd seen was the parting of the Red Sea. That was amazing. But now this is terrifying. Thunder, lightning, earthquakes, and they don't move. So you hear God going, come on, come slowly. Fine, don't come at all. Whatever he's trying to do, he's provoking. It's like parents. It's like parents with a kid who will not move. Do something. Do it slow. Don't do it. Nothing. And this is what the children of Israel do. They stay there. And in that moment, they exchange what's offered to them, which is called a grant covenant. The grant covenant is a covenant that God gave to Abraham. Now these people were going to take it on as an inheritance. It was always theirs. But now they reject it. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 19, they say to God, or they say to uh, to Moses, Moses, don't let God talk to us anymore. You go talk to God. You come tell us what he says. Moses responds and says, guys, Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, God is doing this to test you so that you will not sin. The word for sin there is the Hebrew word chatah, which means essentially to lose your identity. In other words, he's trying to show you who you really are to break the lie of slavery off of you so that you can see the truth about yourself. That's essentially what Moses says. The people are like, we don't want to hear God anymore. God at that moment goes silent for the next 1300 years. He'll speak to individuals, but he won't talk corporately again until Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism and the voice from heaven comes out and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Okay, Jesus changes everything. In that 1,300 years of time, you have now, not a grant covenant, but what's called a kinship covenant. And the kinship covenant is, it's like the worst kind of accountability relationship you can imagine with God. It's like, it's like if you get into accountability relationship with God, Here's the way it works. Whoever does something wrong, breaking some part of the covenant, the innocent party is responsible to punish the guilty party. So you see this actually at the mountain. Before they go to the mountain and establish this kind of covenant with God, they murmur, grumble, and complain. And God shows up and corrects them verbally. 
No harsh judgment here. He's just bringing them correction. After the mountain, same grumbling, murmuring, and complaining, and they die. What are we in? A different covenant altogether. And this is the nature of the covenant that they end up with God, having with God, because they don't want to hear his voice. Super dangerous to just go, God, I don't want to hear your voice. I'm going to do it my own way. That's exactly what happens to these people. Yet God, in that moment, condescends to allow himself to be put in a box. Only time God ever allowed himself to be put in a box. The Ark of the Covenant in the middle of the camp. And yet, these people don't want to hear the voice of God, but they can see the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. They can literally see the manifest presence of God 24-7. But they don't want to hear him speak. People say, well, the God of the Old Covenant in the Old Testament is super harsh. Well, no. He's operating according to the covenant rules, the terms of engagement. But actually, he's God of incredible grace. Stop and think about this with me for a second. If a goat, the blood of a goat, under the Old Covenant, could cover the sins of a whole nation for an entire year, how much sin do you think the blood of the Lamb of God covered? And how long does that last? No comparison. So, Jesus shows up and he completely undoes the Old Covenant system. You need three things. This is probably like a 50-hour teaching, but we'll just back it up. You need three things to get, get forgiven in the Old Covenant. You need a priest, a high priest, to offer a sacrifice for the nation. You need a sacrificial lamb. And then you also need a, a, a God sitting on the throne, a holy one accepting the sacrifice and receiving it. In Christ, God becomes all three. He is our great high priest, according to Hebrews 9. He is the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And he's also the one sitting on the throne receiving the sacrifice. So the new covenant becomes a completely different system that has ever been before. Under the old covenant, God and man make a covenant. Man breaks a covenant. Now you got problems. The new covenant's very different. Isaiah 42, 6, God says to the Messiah, I will give you, speaking of who we know as Christ, says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. So the new, here's the way the new covenant is different, probably one of the biggest ways. And if anybody wonders, what's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant? The old covenant was made between God and man. The new covenant is not. The new covenant is made between God the Father and God the Son. That's why the new covenant is unbreakable. You didn't make it, so you can't break it. Thank God for the new covenant. (laughs) Nothing you do can threaten the new covenant. The new covenant will always be the new covenant. God's not going to jettison the new covenant and go back to the old covenant, which is why now every time you hear a prophet prophesy some massive doom and gloom over a nation or over the body of Christ, like God's dropping the hammer of judgment on us anymore, you got to go, hey, so did the cross do anything at all? See, God's dealing with us now by a completely different set of terms. Now you and I have an opportunity, responsibility in a sense, to represent His grace. And I am a huge fan of it. I'm a bigger fan of grace than you can imagine. Can't wait to hear your podcast. Let me give you a couple of things the New Covenant did, and then we can just open it up for some questions. The New Covenant created union between God and man. If you want to take notes, I may get through maybe four points. The new covenant created union between God and man. <clears throat> think, of like, think of it like this. You are one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. As a dear friend of mine says, and he did that. One with God in Christ 
That's your authentic identity. One with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he did that. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 30 says, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, sanctification, redemption, reconciliation. He ultimately becomes all the things we try to do for ourselves, include getting sanctified. People say, well, okay, so I may just receive grace by faith and salvation by faith, but I'm working out my sanctification. No, you can work it out with fear and trembling, but the Bible goes on to say, for it's God who works in you, who will and to do according to his good pleasure. John 17, Jesus says, for their sakes, speaking of the disciples, but he says, he's actually praying for all of us, by the way. He says, for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they may be sanctified in truth. So he looks at us and goes, man, they can't even sanctify themselves. They can't save themselves. They can't sanctify themselves. I'm going to go ahead and do it all for them. So he accomplishes once and for all everything necessary in order for you to be right with God. You contribute a big fat nothing to your salvation. The cross is the eternal I do of heaven over humanity in the grand wedding ceremony of the ages. How do you, how do you ultimately come to a place where you can actually enjoy the benefits of the covenant that's been, that's been said yes over you? Say yes back. What are you doing? You're just simply aligning yourself with the heart of your heavenly father. You're aligning yourself with the sound of heaven. You're, you're setting up to not strive into it, but just surrender to say, Jesus, I believe it's true. I don't understand it. I don't get it. Can't wrap my mind around it, but I believe it. And by faith, I receive it. There's something interesting that happens in that moment. There's a conversion, transformation, something takes place. Old things passed away. All things have become new. The scales ripped off your eyes. You suddenly become aware of who you really are, but it's just scratching the surface. That unfolding, unveiling of the truth of who you are is, I think it's going to be eternal. I think we're always going to be discovering more about us just as we're discovering more about him. So God has created this amazing mystery of union, oneness. John 14, 20, my my favorite verse in the whole Bible because it still melts my brain, blows my mind 10,000 ways. Jesus says, in that day you will know I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. Spend five minutes meditating on that and then try to function as a human being. Like, what do you do with that? Second thing New Covenant did for us is it made us one with each other. Actually united us together. Laws taken away, the Old Covenant's taken out of the way, and now Jew, Gentile, all come together as one into, as Ephesians calls it, one new man. Paul said it like this, Galatians, he said, there's no slave or free, male or female, uh, uh, no male or female, slave or free, Jew or Greek, all are one in Christ. What does that even mean? It means in Christ is your authentic, unshakable identity that transcends this costume, transcends race, gender, nationality, and social status. It's the truth of who you are in Christ. So I tell people, listen, you don't even know how to be human until you see yourself in Christ. Once you see yourself in Christ, then you begin to let Christ define how you do life in this costume. It's the only way you know how to be human. Made us one with each other. So... I heard somebody in here leading worship earlier. Who was that? Somebody was singing in here. Back here? What's her name? Laurel. Laurel. Okay, so I walked in and she's singing up here and I'm like, wow, that's amazing. I don't have the grace for that. I can make a joyful noise, but I don't sing like that. 
Now, if I think there's distance and separation between me and her, I watch her offer her gift unto the Lord and sing and worship, and I might get jealous and competitive because there's distance and separation. But let's say like this. If Laurel knows Jesus, I know Jesus. Hey, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is 100% totally in her. It's also in me. Well, as far as I can tell, she's back there and I'm right here. There seems like there's a lot of distance and separation between the two of us. We've never met, so there's that distance and separation. But Christ is not divided. One spirit. So that means that in the physical distance and separation that I am experiencing right now is an illusion. The greater reality is that we are actually one spirit. Now when I realize that, that means the same spirit that's in me, the Holy Spirit that's in me that operates uniquely through the grace gift he's placed on me is operating also uniquely, differently, distinctly through the grace gift he's placed on her, but it's the same spirit. Now there's no jealousy and no competition. I watch her offer her gift and the anointing comes out of her life. What am I seeing? I'm seeing God artistically expressing himself through his creation, the same God that lives in me. And now I am in awe. So I watch Laurel and I go, wow, I didn't know I was that awesome. (laughs) No idea. No competition, no jealousy. Stop and think about this. Picture an environment where the body of Christ operates with no competition, no jealousy, and championing the grace and the anointing on each other's lives. What would happen then if somebody comes in from the outside? What would we do? Where is Jesus in you? We would look and see Jesus. We'd dig around past the lies and the labels and the costume and all the things that people think about themselves to find out where he uniquely shows up in them. Because the more I get to know you, the more I get to know him. I discover intimacy with God the more I get to discover how he operates, moves, lives, moves, has his being in you. It's, it's kind of the way that God forces us into relationship, whether we like it or not. <laughs> You're never going to get to know God by isolating yourself from other people. Mm-hmm. So we're made one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Second, we're made one with each other. Third, the, the new covenant does something that I think is this is probably the hardest part about this whole thing. Uh, if you got Bibles and you want to turn there, go to Acts chapter 10. This is kind of fun. Um, the New Covenant does something for us that, that 2,000 years after the cross, after the resurrection, we're still trying to figure out. In Acts chapter 10, there's a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. And Cornelius uh, serves God, and he blesses financially, blesses the people he's actually paid to oppress. And an angel comes to Cornelius one day and says, Your prayers and alms have risen as a memorial before God, which means even in the new covenant, the things we do here on earth actually matter in heaven. It's not that we're operating out of works. It's just that God actually recognizes uh, what we do. Uh, So as we serve others, love others and whatnot, it seems like God takes notice of that. And yet what happens is Cornelius wants something more. He knows there's more and God's about to give it to him. But the way he's going to give it to him is going to be offensive. God could just give Cornelius and his household an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but God is going to use a person to bring it. And instead of picking a person who's actually willing and probably a little more uh, friendly to the situation, God decides to use this to teach 
a very important character, a lesson. And so you find a guy named Peter on the roof of a house down by the sea, and Peter's super hungry. And in the middle of his hunger, God decides to teach Peter this lesson. So he brings a sheet down out of heaven, and in it is a buffet of everything that we love. Lobster and shellfish and bacon and everything that Peter isn't supposed to eat. And God says to Peter, arise and kill and eat. Peter's response is so fascinating. He says, two words, no, Lord. I mean, think about this. It made more sense if he didn't know who he was talking to, but he does know who he's talking to, and he says no. Pushes back against it. Think about that. No, Lord. This is Peter, the guy who said, I'll never deny you. The guy who said, like, everybody else might leave you, but I'll never leave you. This guy. No, Lord. This is how entrenched the old covenant was in these people. You could walk with Jesus Christ for three years. You could literally witness the the resurrected Christ showing up, doing a 40-day conference All things pertaining to the kingdom of God, that's what Acts 1 says. Peter has just sat through a month and a a half of teaching from the resurrected Christ on the kingdom, sees the ascension, he's there when the Holy Spirit falls, he's the guy who stands up and says, this is that that Joel prophesied. He's literally leading the church, and now God comes to him and gives him, confronts him with a better way than the old covenant tells him to violate the old covenant and peter goes no lord given the choice to follow the word of the lord or default to religious tradition peter chose religious tradition even after everything he'd experienced so it's not a shock to me that two thousand years after the resurrection we're still having this conversation (laughs) it's really not when I met your pastor today, Pastor Larry just lit me up because I met an incredibly rare character who understands the new covenant. <laughs> a pastor who understands the new covenant. Such a rare find. Seriously. And, and I preach in a lot, a lot of churches. But the ones I prioritize are where leadership actually has language for the new covenant. And they continually put it out there before their people. I mean, the new covenant can be summed up in three words. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. So Peter's standing up there. No, Lord, wind the sheet up. Do it again. So the play happens three times. Peter has the same response every time. Finally, God looks at Peter and says, don't call what I have cleansed unclean. Okay? Peter's listening to this word. Then God follows it up by saying, there's a couple of guys that are about to knock on the door. Go with them. And don't have any misgivings about it. That's the Bible's way of saying, don't be a jerk to these guys, all right? So Peter now leaves with these guys and finds himself in the house of Cornelius. When he gets there, he says this. He says, you guys you guys know, in verse 28, you yourselves know how unlawful <laughs> it's against the law for me to be here. <laughs> so unlawful for a man who's a Jew to associate with a foreigner or visit him. And yet, here we go. God has shown me that I am not to call any man unholy or unclean. Ponder that. Think about this with me. This was the lesson of the sheet. It wasn't about food. It was about people. Peter walks out of that with this revelation, and that is that I am not allowed to call any man unholy or unclean. Now, if I can't call you unholy or unclean, what do I call you? Holy and clean. Okay. Back up 
get into people's heads here for a second. But wait, they're not holy and clean until they receive Jesus. Jesus then makes them holy and clean. After they receive Jesus, then they're holy and clean. Peter gets a revelation going, I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm not allowed to call anybody unholy or unclean ever. Anybody? Nobody? What is God doing? See, here's the thing. We, we read this verse and we go, well, is that true? That's not the right question. God's not calling us to make a judgment call on, on reality. He's calling us to a new perspective. He's calling us to adopt a perspective here. Let's just say it like this. What would it change about your life if you suddenly realized you couldn't call anybody unholy or unclean? How would it change your interaction with people if all you could see is holy and clean? Say again? Yes. <laughs> uh, the Apostle Paul uh, has the same revelation, but he gets it from a little bit of a different angle. In Colossians, he says, uh, Colossians 3, he says, there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free. And then he says these two phrases, these two groups of people. He says, there's no barbarians and no Scythians. Which, by the way, th- these are the most hated, the most violent, the most wicked people groups of, of Paul's day. The Al-Qaeda and ISIS of his day, or pick any group that everybody loves to hate. He says, there's no barbarians, there's no Scythians. Well, yes, there are. Obviously there are. But he says, no, no, no. No slave or free, even though people are acting like it. There's no Jew or Greek, even though people are born in those countries. There's no barbarians or Scythians, even though people are part of those cultures. Everything he's saying, you could disprove by observing the culture. But he says, no, no, actually, that's not true. And then he says this phrase, Christ is all and in all. Well, is that true? Again, it's the wrong question. God's not asking us to make a blanket judgment on reality. What he's asking us to do is shift our perspective. What would happen? How would it change the way you deal with people, look at people, if when you looked at people, all you saw was Christ? You first saw Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says like this, from now on, we regard no man according to the flesh. In other words, I'm not going to let your costume dictate to me how I treat you. You tell me this is who you are? Maybe not. You tell me this is your name? God was always changing people's names. Why? Because he's really interested in stripping your identity, old identity off, and giving you a brand new one, which the new one is actually who he's always known you to be. So if we're becoming anything, we're really becoming who we've always been. As we surrender to letting the word of God shape our lives, we discover who we've always been. Old things passed away, but all things are becoming new, certainly new to us. But from heaven's perspective, he made up his mind about you long before you had the chance to impress him or disappoint him. He's always known who you are. He's not confused about who you are. The only person confused about who we are is us. He's fully well aware of who you are. From his perspective, when he looks at you, people always like to say he looks at you through the blood of his son. Absolutely. He looks at you and he sees Jesus. He himself is the propitiation of our sins, and not our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And the fascinating part about the word propitiation is, is uh, it, 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 if people would look up the word propitiation, they would discover they've been hearing a, a gospel that's very different from propitiation. Um, what's your name? Janet. Janet. Let's say Janet. I'm only picking on you because you're sitting closest. <clears throat> so way to go. So let's say we're in a court of law and Janet is guilty. Oh, we all know it. We've seen, we got videos, we got pictures, we got audio. And, uh, and, and we're about to drop the hammer of judgment. The judge is about to drop the hammer of judgment on Janet, pronounce her guilty. And suddenly Jesus busts into the courtroom and says, Hey, hey, doesn't, uh, doesn't the rules say that somebody has to take the punishment? Does it matter who takes the punishment? 
I'll take Janet's punishment. Janet, you get to go free. I get to take your punishment. So Janet goes free. Jesus takes the punishment. That's the gospel most of us have heard. It's good news. It's nice. Problem. Janet's still guilty. We all know it. Now she's got the death of the Son of God on her conscience. So there's that. That's actually not propitiation. That's called expiation. That's not what Jesus is. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. When it says he's a propitiation of our sins, this is the way it works. Let's go back to the courtroom again. Janet's guilty. Everybody knows it. And they're ready to show the videos. They're ready to play the audios. And then they suddenly show the video. And it's not Janet on the video. It's Jesus. Whoa. What's going on here? Play the audio. That's not Janet's voice. That's Jesus' voice. Show the pictures. That's Jesus. That's not Janet. Janet, apparently you've been falsely accused. Jesus is the guilty one, not you. You get to go free. See, now you don't, you don't just have your freedom. You have your innocence restored. What, what, are you saying Jesus was a sinner? No. The Bible says like this. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Jesus steps into the courtroom and says, I'm going to give you my identity. I'm going to take yours. I'm going to take all the guilt and all the shame. I'm going to take the whole crime and everything. I'm going to give you my innocence and my righteousness. That's it. You have my identity. <laughs> it's a baptism of innocence is really what it gives. This is, this is the gospel of propitiation that puts us all in the exact same boat by the grace of God. Restores the standard. Changes your story. You know how much he changes your story? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I love, I love Hebrews 11, the hall of fame of faith. There's a character in Hebrews 11 that we don't often talk about because she's kind of embarrassing. And it's Sarah, Abraham's wife. You know that she's in Hebrews 11, in the hall of fame of faith? It implies in Hebrews 11 that she heard the word of the Lord and believed God. Well, no, she didn't. I watched the news. I know what happened. The historical record says she heard of the word of the Lord and she came up with the worst idea in human history which we watch the news every night and see the result of. So what do we got? We, we got a problem here. Either the writer of Hebrews is lying, or by the Holy Spirit's grace, in the new covenant, God gives us a little bit of a glimpse behind the curtain to see how heaven views your history. You say, wait, 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 can he change time? Absolutely, he invented it. He can do whatever he wants with it. He can make more. Even if you think you've wasted time, he can make more, right? <clears throat> on my computer, on, on my Apple computer, there's a little program called GarageBand. It's for those of us who feel like we may someday want to be musicians and we can learn how to actually, how to actually like, you know, make a, make a song. I used to work for a company called EMI Records, and so I'd sit in the studios and watch uh, massive bands do all their thing and watch it. And, and what they would do is they would create different tracks. And uh, so now every computer can do it. You can do it on your phone now. And so you create a vocal track and a drum track and a bass track and a guitar track, and, and every musician goes in there and they play their part, and they're super nervous, and they put their track down, and, 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 and then you, you get what's called a rough demo, Right? And in the rough demo, there might be parts that are pitchy and guitar string breaks and part of the drum kit fell over. I mean, you never know. It's a rough demo. So the band gets done recording all their parts, and then they leave. And, uh, and then the track gets mastered. And the producer comes in, 
And he looks at the recording and he goes, this is a great idea, but we need to add some effects here and let's re-record that there and let's adjust the pitch there and let's take that section out. Ooh, that was ugly. And let's bring in a pro and he's going to make that better. And so he puts it all together. And I've sat in the studio dozens of times and watched bands come back into the studio to hear the mastered recording. And they'd sit there and the guy would hit play and he'd lean back in the chair because he'd know what was about to happen. And these professional musicians who had played together forever would sit back and they'd listen and all of a sudden they'd lean in as sound came out of the speakers. They were all wide-eyed looking at each other like, that's us? They were shocked at the difference between the rough demo and the mastered recording. I feel like life is like, as we've been thrust into it, it's kind of like we're recording a rough demo. The record button's been pushed and suddenly the tracks are just going and man, Guys, let's admit, some of our song, there were some pitchy parts. You lost your voice in one section, forgot the words in another, broke some guitar strings. Maybe you just got tired and smashed the guitar at some point, trying to destroy the whole song, but the recording just kept on going, and you're thinking there's nothing anybody can do with this. But can I tell you what I believe is in store for all of us in eternity? The same thing that was in store for Sarah. Because for whatever reason, her rough demo was really rough and affected a lot of people. But according to Hebrews 11, she heard the word of the Lord and believed God. Her mastered recording does not seem to include that part of her history. <laughs> so you think everything you, I, I know for those of you who've like, you know, had a perfect life and done it all right, this is nothing to you. But for the rest of us, this is like shouting news right here. This is like really good news. This is like seriously worth rejoicing over. Like, wh- what? Is that even possible? Sure, all things are possible. He's God, He can do anything, but will He? Yes, He's that good. God is absolutely better than you think, and you can't imagine him better than he is. The new covenant gives us a glimpse into an eternity. The mastered recording of your life is absolutely a masterpiece, flawless. And I can't wait to hear your song. You can get hints of this in the scripture. The Bible says God rejoices over us with singing. Songs have lyrics. We're made in his image and likeness. Why are we drawn to worship God? Because every appetite that you have for God mirrors an appetite that he has for you. It's a, it's a small glimpse of a greater revelation of the reality that God's been singing promises over your life. David said, Psalm 139, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would outnumber all the sand. I'm no expert in sand, but we do live in Florida, which is one gigantic sandbar held together by, I don't know, pixie dust or something. So, so I went out one day and I just grabbed a hold of a little pinch of sand and I put it on my dining table and I started like counting out how many grains are in a pinch of sand. I got to 200. I wasn't, I didn't even made a dent in that little pinch of sand. And then I got bored and I thought, what's the point of this? And I felt the Lord say, Bill, if you could agree with just 10 grains of sand worth of what I believe about you, it would change your entire perspective, not just to you, but everybody around you. Forget the state of Florida or the Sahara Desert. Why don't you just agree with 10 grains of sand worth of what I believe about you? Oh, but but, Bill, if I believed that, wouldn't it make me proud? No, because you didn't do it. Can't take pride for something you didn't do. You realized how God sees you, how he views you, and how he's absolutely committed to, to, to fulfilling the master recording of your life and turning it into a masterpiece in eternity where heaven literally rejoices over it. 
Oh my goodness, it wouldn't fill you with pride, it'd fill you with gratitude and awe of gratitude at what you don't have the will to accomplish on your own or the power to accomplish on your own. He's done for you by his grace. Pure and simple. It's called the new covenant. And I thank him for it every waking moment of my life. So I want to pray for you guys tonight and just pray that God will continue. That was three points, wasn't it? I'm sure there's another one, but we'll just stop there. That's plenty. I want to pray for you guys and ask that the Lord would continue to unfold the new covenant. Listen, can I tell you, when you hear negative prophecies and people can't, you know, people, <clears throat> I, I, I look at people and I go, I, I just, I just want to see everybody come to a revelation of the new covenant. Don't, don't get, don't get kicked back, angry, upset at, uh, at that. Just begin to pray that God will unveil the fullness of the new covenant to people. That we begin to prophesy from a new covenant perspective so we can begin to align the sound of our spirit with the heartbeat of heaven. I think in that way we start to learn how to steward um, things in this earth a whole lot better um, rather than responding so much hatred and so much uh, just, just vile uh, sound. That's what's coming out of the body of Christ so often these days. This is the, this is the message that I, just, I go around talking about from a thousand different angles and just ask the Lord, God, give me words and language to, to just encourage people to walk in the revelation and new covenant perspective. Um, It'll make you see Scripture different. It'll make you see everybody different. Position yourself in your heart in such a way that you'd say, okay, God, as I go out today, as I interact with people, even people who I had to formally call enemies, now I can't even give them permission to be enemies because I'm supposed to love my enemies, bless those who curse me, pray for those who despitefully use me, do good to those who mistreat me. God, give me me the, the grace to see these people as holy and clean before they see it in themselves. God, give me the grace to see you Christ in them before they see him in themselves. God, then let them know that they're seen. I think we see people that way and people look at us and they look in our eyes. They know that we're seeing beyond the costume and we're truly seeing them. I think this is why people who are labeled sinners loved Jesus so much because he was absolutely in love with the truth of who they were and refused to see anything different. Cool. It's been my experience that um, it really takes a revelation of the whole, of, of just who God is and who God, and how our relationship is with Him. And uh, because I, you try to explain something, to, even to a Christian, right. where they're stuck with uh, shame or they're stuck in this, they're stuck in that, and you say, mm-hmm. look, this is what the Bible says. It says, he has done it for all. He's sure. done it all for you. you. There's nothing that you can do. Mm-hmm. It's just receiving, mm-hmm. and they just, you know, it just can't. It can't be. Right. And uh, uh, our ego is dying. Yeah. When when you take away credit for effort, to where we can't take the credit for it, it kills our ego. And even as Christians, our our, our ego is strong. If you read the early Christian writers, first three centuries, when they talk about soteriology, they talk about salvation, their experience with being saved, it always talks about what Jesus did. Jesus saved, Jesus did, Jesus met me, Jesus, whatever. Fast forward 2,000 years, I go into any church, ask people, how'd you get saved? It always begins with the same word, I. I went, I did, I prayed, I did, da, da, da. So somewhere in the last 2,000 years, the work of grace, the work of salvation has gone from what Jesus did to what we do. And somehow, given enough time, we always try to take credit back. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it took me, I, I came to the Lord when I was 19, but it took me till 
till I was uh, in 2000 mm-hmm. to where, wow, he really loves me. Yeah. And then it was a journey of how does this work? <laughs> I mean, he, you just love me for all the crap that I've done. Sure. And, and I, I just had to, then he started showing me in, in the word different ways of, mm-hmm. or just revealing what I'd read all along. There it was, there it is. Absolutely. And, and, and then I thought, <laughs> but then I was stuck with other people, not, well, they got to do this. Okay. So, <clears throat> so here's, here's a, this is something I like, kind of an illustration I like to use. When we come to a revelation of the grace of God and the fullness of the new covenant, it's like crossing the finish line of a marathon. And, you know, when you cross the finish line of a marathon, you're euphoric. I mean, it's like, it's the greatest feeling on earth, right? And that's kind of how you feel when you discover the grace of God, the new covenant revelation of what Jesus Christ has done, the transformation that just is continually ongoing, but it's always eternally been, yet always eternally will be. I mean, it transcends our ability to, it, we, we end up becoming a mystic whether we want to be or not, because now we have to embrace a mystery that goes beyond our language. So what a lot of people do, a lot of friends, contemporaries, theologians do, is they're so thrilled with this, they, it's like jump in a bus and drive back to like the two or three mile mark and go, get on the bus. And everybody's like, what? They're, I mean, they just started the race push them all on the bus, and then drive them across the finish line, shove them out of the bus, and go, you feel that? And they're like, no. And I've discovered that there is a value in the journey. God's not afraid of our journey. Um, Jesus didn't come to show up and correct everybody's theology. Matter of fact, when he ascends, he leaves the disciples with theological issues, which is Kind of irresponsible when you stop and think about it, isn't it? Yeah. No, it, because he, he trusts our journey. He's, he's bringing each one of us through a very unique journey. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So let me say it like this. In each of our journeys, God may not be in the business now of dropping the hammer of judgment collectively on the church or a nation, but he deals with us internally by the power of his Holy Spirit. So Hebrews says it like this, like uh, that God, who he loves, he chastens and scourges every son who comes to him. Why? Because if he doesn't, if he doesn't correct you, in a sense, are you actually a son? So the ability to, to have, we have the freedom to go wrong if we want to, but the ability to be course corrected by the Lord actually validates our sonship. So in a personal way, he's dealing with each of us. And so sometimes when he deals with us, we want to you know apply that to everybody. I have a dear friend... Um, uh, named uh, Charlie, and uh, Charlie is a bit of a, a loose cannon of a prophet, and uh, and yet he and I have found ourselves converging on a road of grace. So I asked Charlie one day, how'd you get saved? How'd you come to Christ? And Jesus appeared to him in his bedroom, actually broke through his wall. Physically, he said he saw this. In the spirit, it was a spirit, spiritual manifestation, but physically, Charlie said he saw it. He said, Jesus showed up at a time when I was just a bad man. And he goes, Charlie, you're going to give me your life or I'm going to kill you. Now, okay, now when Charlie told me that story, I'm like, that doesn't sound like Jesus to me. And I felt the Lord say, I talk differently to Charlie than I talk to you. And aren't you glad? Like, yeah. Yeah, I am. And uh, God, <laughs> yeah, and, and Charlie is too. Here's the thing. I wouldn't have responded to that. Charlie wouldn't have responded to anything else. 
Yet it's interesting how our journeys have brought us to a point of convergence. And I realize this is how God deals with us because now we are the temple of his Holy Spirit. He's given us individually, he's given us his spirit. And so he's guiding each one of us. So the way that he talks to you may be different. Same spirit, but talks different to you than he talks to me because he knows exactly what he needs to say to you and exactly what he needs to say to me. So, you know, all of that to say, everybody's on a journey. And one of the biggest challenges that I have is when I go into a church, I go, okay, God, what is the, what's the message and the language? What's the message you want me to speak? And what's the language you want me to use? It's not compromising on the gospel. It's recognizing where people are on the journey and what needs to be said in order to invite them to take the next 10 steps. Yeah. Not, not throw them in a bus and drive them across the finish line. Cause some people may respond to that, but the vast majority of them will freak out. Yeah. I, I did ministry at Burning Man for several years. My first year there. God bless you. My first year there. I'm ministering to these people and I'm seeing tears running down their face and they're just broken. Mm-hmm. The next day I see them junk, dancing out in the street naked and I go, God, what is this all about? Yeah. And he did the same damn thing that he did to me back 2000. He says, Richard, I just love him. Yeah. And it just showed me, okay, God, <laughs> yeah. help me through this. And one plants, one waters. But yeah. God's not afraid of our journey. I mean, think of, think of the way he, think of the way that Jesus does with Peter. Jesus comes to Peter one day and goes, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. If if I'm Peter, I'm like, you said no, right? Because we're friends. Like, like, why are you even talking to Satan about me anyway? Like, I'm so confused right now. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But then Jesus goes, I want to pray for you. <laughs> what? And when you return, strengthen your brothers. Okay, so think about that, that phrase. When you return, that's restoration. Strengthen your brothers, that implies leadership. So Jesus looks at Peter and he sees him as a restored leader before he's even fallen. Because that's how Jesus views you. He's not afraid of our journey. Good, bad, or ugly. So I love this setup, by the way. This is you know, in my journey. The more that I go into grace and the more, uh, the bigger it gets, the less I understand how to give the gospel. Like the first day, I would say, the next day, if somebody said, here's the track with the four spiritualized, get out there and do it. Uh, It's just, yeah, it, it gets to be almost too loose. Like how do you... Right. Bring somebody's heart to engagement with Jesus. So let's go back to what I said at the beginning. God is breaking us a formula. We have a way of turning everything into formula. First altar call, I think you can find on record in mass, was not Billy Graham. It's a guy named Billy Sunday. And has like 10,000 people in front of him and doesn't know how in the world to bring these people, uh, an audience that big, to, to Christ. So invites them to come to an altar, has them all say a prayer of salvation, which Billy Graham adopts, other people adopt. What happened? A Holy Spirit-led moment that was breathed upon in in that moment that brought tons of people into an awareness, an introduction to Jesus, suddenly becomes a formula. And the formula actually works. It's good. 
But the problem is, is anything that you do to contribute to your salvation, you can say, well, I did. You know, I point, I point to that. I did that. And, and then I got saved. That becomes a work in some sense. So here's, here's the thing, the question I ask. God, what, what do you want me to say or do in this moment that will introduce people to you? You know, I uh, have my best, one of my best friends, the whole world, Jim, back here. How do I introduce people to Jim? You know, sometimes, uh, you know, I'm just, hey, this is Jim. Jim, this is so-and-so. What does it take to do that uh, with, with a person and Jesus? So I still pray with people to receive Christ, but there's something about that moment that just solidifies in their heart that this has happened. You know, it, there, there's something prophetic about doing something, taking an action that causes a moment to become memorable. And when a person is willing to actually take an action, that they're actually laying their body down as a living sacrifice. You know, I mean, they're, they're essentially saying, okay, I'm going to offer my voice. I'm going to bow my head. I'm going to do something physically that actually is a response to the work of the Holy Spirit's in my heart. They may not understand that fully, and they may think that the action actually produced the result. When, in fact, the action was a response to the presence of the Spirit drawing them. So how do I introduce people to the Holy Spirit? How do I introduce people to Jesus? You know, uh, simple as introducing him to your best friend. And so the language will be different depending on who you're talking to. Uh, yeah, it, it, but anything, anytime we find, we're, we're always looking. This is what I'm pushing against a lot. We're always looking for a simple formula. And we are people of formula where... I have a, a dear friend that was at the conference we were at. His name is Ivan Tinklenberg, and Ivan got saved under my dad's ministry. Uh, my dad was doing a Bible study in a house in 1984. To hear him tell the story is just funny. Ivan says, I'm sitting there, and I'm listening to your dad preach the gospel, and all of a sudden, Jesus came into me. I knew I was, a, I, knew I was Christian. I was his child. I was his son. And he goes, and I go home, and he said, my brother Mark looks at me and goes, what happened to you? And he goes, I think I got saved. Mark goes, how'd you do it? He goes, I, I didn't. Jesus, Jesus saved me. I just think that's like the most beautiful thing. The, the fact that here's a guy who, you know, in modern times can't point to anything he did. You know, it, Jesus basically just said, you're mine. And he knew it. And that's, I just so think that's kind of a, pure. It's a relational formula that has relationship to it it's all relationship yeah. i mean I, th I think that's one of the reasons why god chose peter to go to cornelius's house because peter needed to see something cornelius needed to step into the reality of what he had access to in the more but all all god wanted to do was bring peter into this inf offensive environment it's kind of mean when you think about it to bring peter into that kind of environment that's going to be so uncomfortable for him why not bring a better you know better candidate but he brings peter Peter is preaching the gospel in Acts 10. And in the middle of his sermon, the Bible says, while Peter's still preaching, the Holy Spirit falls, crashes in on the room, blows up the meeting. Peter's done. That's it. It's over. So God is absolutely bent on offending the religion out of Peter. There's no formula. Peter walks out of there and goes, there's no formula to this thing. I, I guarantee you. I, I have friends. I know personally know four people alive right now on this earth that have led over a million people to Christ. They go to other countries, there's a massive crusade, they get up, they have a, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a song and dance to it. And, and I love them, and I bless it. There's an evangelistic grace on those people's lives. I mean, there is an office in the New Covenant, there's an office of an evangelist, and an evangelist can get up in front of a crowd of people and say, Mary had a little lamb, and everybody will rush the altar. Because there's something about 
the surrendered sound of the spirit that they carry that just draws people to Jesus. And usually the messages are super simple. Go back and listen to old Billy Graham messages. Watch what stirs in your heart. You're like, whoa, what is that? It's the Holy Spirit inspired this guy. He had that evangelistic grace on his life. Um, but I think for the vast majority of the body of Christ, you know, it's simple as introducing people to your best friend. And it happens through relationship and love, not from a stage in front of a crowd, because most people won't experience that. Yeah. Make sense? Yep. Yeah. I'm working really hard not to give you a formula. <laughs> Can you give us the four steps? To the four steps to, yeah. To, yeah. No. <laughs> what I love about that story with Cordelius is you have all these people steeped in cultural, legal, whatever traditions. Mm -hmm. This thing happens, and in chapter 15, the entire leadership of the church goes, based on experience, one experience, oh, the Gentiles get saved too. Yeah. <laughs> there was no doctrinal discussion. It was just like, hey, this happened, so yeah. guess we all get Changed saved. Changed everything. Yeah, and it's amazing that if we're listening to the Spirit, if we're willing to walk in that, God says, check that out. Now, does it mean all experience put determines doctrine? No. Right. But it means we got to be willing to say, hmm, okay. Yeah. Sometimes we let our experience determine what we believe. Sometimes we don't let our experience determine right. what we believe. Um, I, you know, my friend Jim and his, their church probably sees more healing than just about anybody I've, I've met. It, if Jim went down a rundown of some of the, some of the miracles that they've seen in their church, it, it'd blow your mind. And what, how many dead raisings? Yeah. So, I mean, legit documented stuff. Um, but it came from pursuing something. Yeah. The previous experience was that it didn't happen. They didn't let that experience dictate yeah. their theology. Because they saw promises in the scripture that were new covenant revelations that there's, this is available. And in that availability, there was something that was worth actually not striving for, right. but surrendering into. And it requires practice. I mean, one of the things I've realized over the last several years, all the gifts require practice. Right. And I remember when I first learned about healing, all the people that were anti-healing said, well, if you had the gift of healing everybody would get healed. So obviously there is no gift of healing. And I, my rebuttal finally was, when you become a pastor and you have the gift of pastor, right. you go to four years of college, three years of seminary, then you get to be a youth pastor. Then after several years of that, you can become the assistant pastor. Yeah. And if you asked a senior pastor, can we go listen to your sermons back when you were just starting? They'd right. probably go, because yeah, no. it requires practice. Yeah. I, I uh, go back to a, a story from Maui, our Maui days. We had a young man uh, that came to the school, and he went to the local, a local church. I won't mention which one, but he went to a local church that didn't believe in healing. And yet we had seen a lot of healing in the school. And he wanted to go out and see people healed. He went out on the streets, and he'd lay hands on people. Nothing would happen. It was really interesting. Other people saw healings. He didn't. And so he, he went and talked to his pastor who had his Ph.D. in theology. And uh, his pastor was a good friend of mine, super smart guy. And uh, he said, why am I not seeing this? And his pastor said this. You have to have like a 12-year degree to come up with this response. He says, uh, well, there is a gift of healing. If you had it, then it would be working. Since you don't, it's obviously not the will of God for you to be praying for people. So you should probably stop that. So he told me that, told me what his pastor said. And I went... So what are you going to do with that? Because 
I didn't want to like push back on what his pastor had said because his pastor was a friend of mine. I'm like, whoo, you gotta, I gotta walk a real careful line here. So I said, well, so what are you going to do with that? And he just so pure, so beautiful. He said, you know, I thought about what he said. Maybe he's right, but I figure I'm going to go ahead and keep praying for people because I think every time I like act like I have the gift of healing, it's kind of like I'm showing heaven what I would do if I had it. Isn't that great? I mean, there was nothing, there was no rebellion against what his pastor had said. Right after that, this guy became a testimony machine, saw people healed left and right. Well, I realized it's not that God was withholding something from him, but God, you know, look throughout the scriptures. God is not above provoking us, provoking us to let go of something that we need to let go of so that we can lay hold of the authentic, you know? So I just I thought the purity of that response was just was awesome. Uh, well, actually, something you said really provoked me over there, and I was thinking about it. And then I was thinking about uh, the, the idea of, of our tendency to get into a formula. And mm-hmm. so I said, "Well, Larry, you're not suggesting a formula here, are you?" And so I worked through those thoughts. Here's what it is. The, the New Covenant, uh, and this might just be me being a pastor, I think there's questions in people's minds here. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, I have questions. Yeah, 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 I do too. <laughs> and then I start thinking about how our first go-to were conditioned in our culture, in church culture in the West and Western rationalism and stuff, to go to a formula. Mm-hmm. Formulas all have more than one part. Yeah. So you can avoid a formula if you don't try to string multiple parts together. That's what I'm thinking. Right. So I was I was racking my brain about what you said, and and this whole thing about believing the new covenant is such a passion, and we we have talked about it a lot. Um, what if the only thing we committed ourselves to in this room tonight, when we're worshiping? <laughs> is to let our belief that the new covenant is not conditional individually on our response. Yes. But it's Jesus. Yes. It's the covenant you said is between the Father yes. and the incarnate Son. Mm. And if we just believe that, and every person we could look at, we saw that, that Jesus said yes in that covenant, Yes. For them. Absolutely. Not only for them, but for them in every way you can imagine. So the only thing I would ask any of us to do tonight, and we have the privilege of worshiping to let this thing seal in when you do it yeah. at the end. What if we just believe it's not conditional? What if, and, and that takes enormous repentance because everything in our productive society is conditional. Yeah. But the new covenant's not. It was written before anybody made a decision in yeah. favor of it. It was crafted and modeled in Abraham's life. It was, right. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It was prophesied by Jeremiah. I think the new covenant always has. I mean, it, we, we see the manifestation of it in Jesus, but I think it always has been because he's a lamb slain from the foundation yeah, of the but, world. Exactly. So what do you think? What do you think if, if, yeah. that's, if that's a takeaway? I think that's For a great takeaway. anybody that's struggling, just, be, just repent mm-hmm. of believing it's conditional. Yeah. And yeah. see where that takes you. That's a beautiful takeaway. Okay. Yeah, I love that. I, I mean, that 
I've always come to God with questions, going answer my questions, and he always ends up questioning my answers and then giving me more questions. So the older I get in this thing, the less I know. So I wish you'd have known me like 20 years ago when I knew everything. I mean, that's kind of the way it is. In the kingdom of God like that, we mature into childlikeness. And what do children do? They're always asking questions. They're always asking why, what, what's, you know. And I think that would be the thing. You're right. Just believe it's not conditional. Just believe it's absolutely a work of grace. Yeah. We'd worship differently. That's true. <laughs> um, about the sharing the gospel message, mm-hmm. I have like a collection of messages that I'm just kind of holding in my heart that I can share with people like um, yeah. the Father sees you and mm-hmm. He's known you since before time. Yeah. And He uh, loves you so yes. much, you know, and that's like my main message is the Father sees you, He's known you. Even when you were in your crib, He saw you and He loved you. But before that even, you know, before time. So try to grasp that. And so then, even hearing that is provoking to me. Because then I'm like, every, every time I hear somebody else say that, I'm like, God, what have you known? I know. What have you what? known that I haven't seen yet? And, and that's, isn't the world just want to be seen? They just want to be seen. They want Absolutely. somebody to like look and say, I see you. I hear you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, everybody wants to be seen, right? right. And they think they're not, right? But um, then the other message is, I may you know how deep and how wide and how yeah. long and how high the love of God is for you. And even, you know, Paul prayed yeah. for us that we would know that. So it's always yes. this, you know, revealing of how big his love is. We'll never know. Some backstory How big on that. It is. Some backstory on that comment when Paul says that that you may know the height, the depth, the length, the width, the breadth, of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Yes. Uh, the um, the 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 law starts with ten, becomes six hundred and thirteen, but the Talmud, which is like six thousand pages if you printed it out, was basically every rabbi down through the ages would come in and go, ha, I got a rule. I've got a saying. I've got a this and I got a that. Some of those sayings would become part of the popular culture of Jewish mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. One of the sayings that was really, really popular comes from the Tractate of Hagiga, which is part of the Talmud. Mm-hmm. This is little known fact. So in this Tractate, this rabbi says, for him who wishes to know the height, the length, the depth, the width of the love of God, it would be better for him that he had not been born. <laughs> Right. In other words, for people to, you know, think that God is a God of love, don't even think that way because it'd just be better for you if you hadn't been born. It was it was a way for them to actually default to judgment that this is what God is like. Don't even try to have a relationship with him. He drops a hammer on you. So when Paul comes up and says, here's my prayer that you may know the length, the width, the breadth, the depth, the height of the love of God, which surpasses knowledge. He's actually this is a Pharisee shutting down. A 1300 year, like, well, 600 year old saying that had become popular in culture. He's pushing back on erasing that. And and then he says that you may know the love of Christ that goes beyond knowledge. Okay. How can you know what you can't know? (laughs) Right? So this is the illustration I like to use. When I come home from work, um, my daughter, Sarah, she's 25 now. Um, she is one of the most beautiful humans God ever made. And when she was a little kid, before she could even like talk, you know, 
say it right. She'd come running in. I'd pick her up and I'd dance around the room and say, you know, I love you, Sarah. I love you. I love you too. Whatever. Now, what kind of a father would I be if I said, Sarah, I would like to love you as your father, but you're not old enough and mature enough to understand love yet. Therefore, I can't demonstrate my love to you until you are old enough to understand it and explain it. Then I will hug you and pour my love out to you. But for some reason, we think that that's the way God does. We can't experience what we can't understand. So what a lot of people think. I have to study, then understand, then I'll be able to experience it. That's not the way God is. My daughter could fully experience the depth of her father's love before she could ever even say the word. That's us. That's us and God. He, he invites us into experiences that we don't have any grid to understand. It blows our mind. We walk away completely intoxicated with the bliss and euphoria of just being loved by our Heavenly Father. And we're just like, I just had an experience I can't even explain. That was my parents in St. Cloud in the coffee shop. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like worshiping. Yeah. I just really do. Yes. Yeah, yeah. As the worship band is coming. Hey, tell you guys, go ahead and uh, stand, would you? Oh, my goodness. Jesus, love you, love you, love you. Oh, Jesus. Oh. Thanks, Jesus, for giving me the heartbeat, breath, time, and favor to get to stand before people and talk about you. But none of the words I can say about you can scratch the surface of what happens when you show up yourself and make yourself known, make yourself real. To sweep us as spiritual toddlers up into your arms and let us feel the affection of your heart again for the first time. So Lord, I pray that tonight this would be a night of just feeling embraced by you from the inside out. God, I pray uh, in the multitude of the words that have been spoken this evening, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would break off every lie that we believed about ourselves and reveal the truth of what you've always known about us. That unworthiness is gone in this room tonight. That shame and guilt are gone in this room tonight. I just feel like the, 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 the word of the Lord over you tonight is freedom. Freedom liberty that you are free to be loved by your father this is the picture I'm getting that, that there's I feel like this is for somebody online you've been in the spirit you've been holding God at arm's length going wait I don't know enough yet I don't know enough yet I don't know if I can trust you I don't know if I can trust you because people have disappointed you for so long and I feel like the Lord is gently gently inviting you to just Drop your arm. Drop the wall. And as you do, just even in the Spirit right now, receive His love. We receive everything from God the same way, by faith. And the faith to receive ultimately comes from God. So we can't even take credit for that. You say, God, I don't even know how to drop the wall. Give me the faith to drop it. Suddenly He'll give you the faith. You'll feel it. Something happens in the inside of you. You feel a, a, a sense of of, of freedom, of trust. 
you know he's good. You know he's not going to leave you forsake. You know he's not going to cause you harm. You know that he's for you and not against you. And in that moment, it's almost like you can feel like you can just lean into his embrace. And then you realize he's right here, closer than my next breath, closer than my next heartbeat. Father, I just thank you that right now, online, in this room, by faith, we just surrender to be embraced by you. We surrender to be embraced by you. Body, soul, and spirit, Jesus, we're yours forevermore. Teach us how to be in you. Amen.